0: Um, I was just uh, sharing about being up in Pittsburgh, sharing with this group of guys. And so Tunch has uh, a bunch of huddles and this other guy named Leo Wisniewski, who also played for the Steelers who's from a football family. Some of you may remember Stefan uh, Wisniewski who played for the Jaguars. He was a guard. He ended up playing for the Eagles when they won the Super Bowl. So now he has a Super Bowl ring. Well, uh, Leo's brother was a guy named Steve Wisniewski who was an all-pro out for the L.A. Raiders for 12 years. So they have a football family. But they So they have what's called huddles, SWAT groups, basically, but they're huddles. They have about each of them, Tunch and him, have about 20 each with – 12 to 15 guys in it so think about that that's a lot of guys that they're discipling doing just what we're doing and so they invited me to come speak so the night before I speak I'm around in this restaurant with his leaders and one of the guys goes uh sitting across from me he goes man you look from here do I know you and I said well, I don't know where are you from he said California I said "Where at he said Costa Mesa I said well I I've spoken out in Newport Mesa a long time ago, and he told me where he went to church, and that wasn't a place. And he said, But I wasn't always there. Before that, I was at Your Belinda. I said, At Your Belinda Friends Church? He goes, Yeah. And then he goes, You're the guy. I did a cross presentation where I used to do this outreach event where I would be the cross builder, the guy that gets the wood ready for Jesus. And uh, about 17, 18 years ago, I, I was invited to come out there and do that for an outreach they did. He was a drug addict. He didn't want to go. His friend drug him to the event that night, and he came, but he said God used that night to change the course and direction of his life. He walked away from drugs. He said God took it away like Amen. that. Wow. And um, that was 17, 18 years ago. Wow. Now he's the men's campus, or he's a campus pastor in Pittsburgh inner city, and he ministers to addicts and has been for the last seven years or so. Told me one sobering fact: last year in 2017, he he did a hundred funerals for overdoses. A hundred funerals in a year—that's one every three days, man. And um, but but you know it was very affirming to me because a lot of times I've spoken in the last 24 years and I'd go do these what I call one-off events and you never know if it impacts anybody and to have it a guy sit there and tell you it it was just really affirming you know to do that and um, and so then I got to go to Israel and thanks for your prayers the the uh, you know the shingles didn't bother me that bad it was more irritating than anything God was very gracious to not let it be too painful um, did Ronnie bother you no <laughs> Ronnie didn't bother me in fact, in fact pastor will uh, come on up I'm gonna have him share about it because it was it was you know some of you guys helped pay for Ronnie to go and make it possible for him to be over there and I wanted him to share a little bit about what it meant to go what his pre-trip expectations were and then how it impacted him uh, well
1: first of all I want to Thank those that uh, supported me going over there. Uh, It was on my bucket list to go, and uh, I'm very thankful uh, to have the opportunity to go. And, you know, before going over there, uh, you know, you you see a little stuff on TV. But thinking that, uh, you know, something may break out or something, but uh, get over there, I I never felt like my life was threatened at all. Uh, It's just like I was here in Jacksonville. You know, well, here in Jacksonville, I heard about a lot of different shootings. I didn't hear about how she was going <laughs> uh, uh But uh, it was, uh, I'm still downloading a, a lot, uh, but it's been a blessing uh, to me, and I encourage every, every man, every male believer, if you ever can get the opportunity to go, to go. Uh, it was, uh, got a chance to, you know, you read about Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, and you see, uh, then you get over there and then get over there and walk where Jesus walked, and we got on the boat on the Sea of Galilee, and it was just it was just some uh, some powerful uh, moments for me, uh, especially when Doug was teaching, uh, and he shared with us uh, the one time when when he told him to go to the other side, you know, he he knew it was going to be a wind a storm there, but he still told him to go to the other side, and and as you look at from where he fed him at. Uh, from the the the, the B attitude, where he gave him the Beatitudes overlooking uh, the sea of Galilee, and now when you read when I when I read about it, it's like it it just comes to life to me. Uh, and knowing how they was together, those disciples that was with him, he chose. Yeah, I mean, he was with them; they was with him all uh, of all the time, 24/7. And uh, and he just didn't go to uh, the wealthy guys, the smart guys. He went and found some of the guys that was just mending nets uh out there mending nets and told them to come follow him and he'll make them fish of men. and these guys these guys he called that he used these guys made an impact on this whole on this whole world getting the gospel out and where we are today we we have it over here that we can share and uh um i was just uh i'm, I'm so thankful so blessed i did have a um uh, a moment over there, um, especially I just started passing back this August been two years and one of my desires there was to uh, I wanted to have a cross put on the inside of the church. They got one on the outside but wanted one on the inside and I was looking for something that was unique. And I've been looking around looking around and, and I didn't I't I didn't see it and it's been going on for about two years and then he, we go to Bethlehem. And uh, they tell us about all how all the wood is made out of olive, the olive wood tree, and it's handmade. And I'm like, wow. And then I looked and I saw some of the, the crosses that was in there, and I was like, Well, this where I need to come get it. This where I need to get it at. Where else? What better place? From Bethlehem, some uh, olive wood made out of olive wood and handmade. And and the Lord blessed that I was able to bring one back. If I had. At the end of it, i'll show you the picture of it and the lord blessed where i'm able to put put this cross in the church uh, and, and it came from bethlehem and if i hadn't been over that i wouldn't i wouldn't have got it but i was there able to get it and uh just very thankful uh for that uh it's a lot of stuff keep going through my mind it's some uh, uh i had a chance to speak over in uh in getty and uh, uh after reading the scriptures going through it and then getting over there, and then actually seeing what en looked like, and the mountains, the caves, and how how uh, David hid from Saul. Uh, you know, him and his uh, what, 600 men, and Saul, 3,000 men, trying to find him, and they never could find him. And it's just, and I was sitting, I was standing there, and just looking around. I was like, wow, these men couldn't find him at all. Be- why? Because he inquired of the Lord. David always inquired of the Lord. And that's what kept them protected. And no matter who was coming uh, uh, after him. So uh, uh, the food was great, excellent. I mean, there was some good food over there. Uh, I think the first night, Doug, I had two plates. Uh, they had some uh, lamb over there. It was real tender. It was real tender. It was real good. Uh, but I, I really uh, enjoyed myself. Uh, I, I was telling my brother about it. His mind made up, he wants to go next year. And I believe it's gonna come a time where the, the trip's gonna start being booked up so quick, you're gonna to have to go, I don't know, what's your limit, Doug? 40. 40 is the limit, you're gonna to have to go the previous year. Because uh, some of the, I've been putting it on Facebook, a lot of people that I know, gaining interest, wanting to go. And especially, especially men, I wanna see more men go and, and be a part of that experience. Because I tell you, it will, it will increase your faith You you will not be the same coming back. You will not be the same coming back. And uh, like I say, it's still more being downloaded uh, in me. And uh, once again, thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um,
0: Chuck's been, um, every time I go, I learn something new. I get something new out of being around the geography and learning something that I, I just didn't know before from being there. Um, it's one thing to read about it, but one of the things that always strikes me and I forget sometimes is, you know, when you're in the bus and you're going from Jerusalem to Galilee or Galilee to Jerusalem, it takes a while on a bus for them, it took six to seven days. That was six to seven days that Jesus walked with them, and they walked with him. They talked with him. And they spent every day, seven days a week with him for that short amount of time. And they were able to, to see some things that we can't glean from here. We glean from here what God's revealed to us. But to go over there, you just get a little bit of perspective of the struggle. And, and, and for us, we expect to just read a few verses here every day and think we know Jesus. And they walked with Him every day, and they struggled to understand stuff. And so it just reminded me of the need to stay in the Word, reading about our Savior, to get to know Him better. and to be around each other, you know, one of the things that made them a faith community was time together. And I try to tell some guys that want to just listen to the podcast, you know, it's not about getting the information, it's about being around each other. We were around each other over there for one week, but that group that went, those 17 people, by the time they were done, they were a faith community people were serving one another. Didn't matter what color your skin was, didn't matter what socioeconomic background you came from, we cared about each other and we were growing in our knowledge of Jesus together. It was a picture of what the church is supposed to be. Instead, it's become just about information. And that's why I want you, if you can't be here, I I get it that work sometimes takes you away, but if you really want to grow in faith community, it's time together. Time together in the Word, being a part of the things. One of the things we're doing is we're doing a Christmas party, and uh, it's uh, December 17th. I think Doug Matthews sent it out to everybody. I, would, I hope you'll come. It's it's you know we only do two social events really a year, where we try to get people together just for the sake of breaking bread together and doing that. So I hope you'll be able to come to that. Please continue to remember Ross Carrier, uh, Ross. Is our brother uh, from the Mandarin, I mean, from the Beaches SWAT, who has pancreatic cancer. He is not doing great. Well, for Michael and uh, Chuck, you're coming in. We're in Matthew 19. And we started right before the Thanksgiving break, Matthew 19, 1 through 6. We're looking at the passage 19, 1 through 12. And Matthew is laying out for the Jewish readers, that Jesus is Messiah. He's been laying it out from chapter 1, starting with the genealogy, going through the teaching, the divine teaching that Jesus gave up on the Mount of Beatitudes, showing the great miracles, um, the interaction with the people, and the religious leaders are really, they're at odds with him. They don't like him. They don't like what he teaches. In fact, Jesus has embarrassed them on several occasions to this point. They've wanted to kill him. Jesus had done many great miracles up to this point. He had fed 5,000 men and their families. He had fed 4,000 men and their families. One in a Jewish area, one in a Gentile area. To say that, you know, it's not whether you're Jew or Gentile. It's for all people. Jesus is for all people. And... In chapter 18, he kind of went through this thing with the disciples because they were arguing over who was the greatest, and he called a little child in front of them, and he he taught them about what it means to be one of his followers. What he really desires in the guys that he's leaving behind is a childlike humility and a dependence. And he wanted them to understand that. It's not about being great. It's about having a heart for people. And he told him the story of a shepherd that goes after the one sheep that's gone astray. And he also talked to him about the seriousness of sin in chapter 18. He said, It's better to cut your hand off if it's going to cause you to keep going against God's will, pluck your eyeball out. And then he told them what to do if, in case somebody offends them, how they go about that. They go personally, privately. Then they, they take another person with them, two maybe with them. And then they tell it to the whole faith community. And then if that doesn't work, then that person is input outside of the faith community till they realize that they're in error. But then he talks to them about forgiveness. And Peter's thinking about this whole process and he goes how many times should I forgive and so Jesus tells a story about a guy who was forgiven much who would not forgive somebody else much and he Jesus used parables to kind of prompt the disciples to go do what they've been taught and what he was saying to them is listen guys you've been forgiven much you need to forgive and you don't put a limit on forgiveness. And I think a lot of times in marriage we limit forgiveness. there probably more than anywhere. And that's what he's dealing with in Matthew 19. He deals with marriage. And we looked at the time before we left that, that basically that marriage is supposed to be permanent and sacred. That's God's design, permanent and sacred. I don't think you get that in our culture today. Marriage is viewed as more of a social contract. In fact, if you were to ask why people get married in our culture, what would you say the reason most people get married is? Why do they get married? What do they look for? What what is the basis for people getting married in our culture? I think if if we were to ask, most of the definitions would somehow revolve around two people seeking to meet each other's needs or have their own needs met. Agree or disagree? That's the general motivation for most people in our culture. But let me give you a biblical view of marriage. A man and a woman brought together as the basic cell of a faith community fulfilling God's command to be fruitful and multiply and to rule over their area of influence. Do you hear that? That's a lot different than what our view is. It's a man and a woman brought together Think about that. A man and woman brought together. Who does the bringing? God does the bringing. See, we like to think we're in control of that. You know how I met my wife? My wife was at a baseball game. I was at a baseball game. I just happened to see her, and to be honest with you, I was more attracted to her figure than I was, I didn't know anything about her personality. I was just attracted to her looks and I think that needs to be a part of it, but going into marriage I thought about partnership maybe, spending my life with her. I thought about, um, you know, the, the sexual part of our relationship. But to be honest with you, I didn't think beyond that to the great faith community issue of reproducing children that would love God and be able to tell future generations. But that is the purpose of marriage. It is the base cell of the faith community. And so if that begins to deteriorate, what happens to the faith community? It splinters, it splinters. And what do we see in our culture? How strong is the faith community in our culture? Not very. We got lots of churches, but I'm talking about the faith community as a whole. We, we've got problems all over the country that are not being dealt with do you know where you the the place that people used to go when they had issues in any city was the church when they had a national emergency people came to the church when they had a something going on a problem they gathered at the church and they sought help from the faith community not anymore now we go to the government we don't go to the church anymore because the faith community has lost its influence but we can can make a difference in our own little faith communities by communicating to those around us, this is the purpose of marriage, to be permanent, to be sacred. And we saw last week there's four legs on which that stands. One of them is God's design. Jesus said a man and a woman is what God designed to be the base unit. Now, that's not popular in our culture, just to limit it to that, but that's what God's Word says. That's one of the pillars. In fact, Jesus took him back to Genesis chapter 1 when he said that, that God designed that. They were having an argument. Well, they really weren't having an argument. In the culture, they had two opposing views rather than an argument. They had the view that you could divorce for any reason at all, and then the, uh, another view was that you could divorce only for adultery. One was from a, a rabbi named Shammai. That was the one that you could only divorce for adultery. The other one you could divorce for any reason at all was Hillel. He was more progressive. So you had these two competing views, but everybody liked Hillel. Why? Because it meant they could get rid of their wives anytime they wanted. And so what the Pharisees were doing, Jesus had left Galilee. He was going to, uh, down to Jerusalem. And on His way, He went through this area called Perea. And the Pharisees goes, we can trap Him with this question. Because everybody loves Hillel's view. But He had already taught you know, on the Mount of Beatitudes where he instructed them on the law and they thought maybe he will take Shema's view and we'll make him unpopular or maybe we'll even make him unpopular enough that Herod Antipas will hear about it and he will kill him because he will remind him of John the Baptist. He had already killed John the Baptist. So that's what's going on. And in 1 through 12, I'm going to read the whole passage. I'm going to, like I said, briefly go over 1 through 6 that we did and then really hit today's uh, part is 7 through 12 where we we look at I, I believe today God in the 7 through 12 reveals the key to a lifelong covenant marriage relationship in this passage as he deals with the issue of divorce but in nineteen one, it says when Jesus had finished these sayings he went away from Galilee he entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and large crowds followed him and he healed them there and Pharisees came up to him and they tested him They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries her, another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Here's the thing. The Pharisees, they were living by the exception. They were always looking for the loophole. And I think we're very much the same way in our culture. Mm-hmm. We look for the loophole. Not the standard. We're always looking for a loophole. We're always looking for the way that what's the least we can get away with. Why? Because if I can get away with the least, then it, 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 it's not as troublesome to me. Because let's face it, marriage is hard. But a lot of people, the divorce rate in the church now is equal to the divorce rate outside of the church. So there's virtually no difference. But divorce is not the problem. It's only a symptom of the problem. The problem is clearly laid out here when he talks about the hardness of heart. You see, I believe that what he's teaching in this passage is that there's three things that will help us have a lifelong covenant relationship in marriage. And the first one is a tender heart. It's a tender heart. It's a tender heart that's grateful, a tender heart that's understanding, and a tender heart that's forgiving. And those things are are related. Grateful, understanding, and forgiving. But the second thing he brings out is we need to recognize our own need for a Savior. Do you realize what he was doing when he said what he said to them? When he goes, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. Do you realize that all those people he was talking to had been divorcing their wives for any and every reason? So what was he saying to him? He's calling them adulterers. <clears throat> Takes me back to the Mount of Beatitudes where he says, if you look at a woman in lust, you're already an adulterer. So he's calling them out. And I think recognizing your own need for a Savior takes you back to Matthew 18 to realize you've been forgiven much. So when your spouse offends you, you can forgive much. And then the third thing he says at the end, let the one who's able to receive this, receive it. You know what he's saying there? He's saying that God's word is the authority. His word is the authority. Not everybody can accept that. When the disciples go, man, that's hard. It's better not to marry. And he goes, not everybody can accept that. But, but there's other things to factor in. Why do you get married? Do you get married because it's comfortable and convenient? Or do you get married because there's a greater purpose than you? I was watching uh, uh, President Bush's funeral. And you know what they kept talking about? He realized that what he was doing throughout his life was always bigger than him. I think that's one of our biggest problems. We have made everything about us, and technology has made everything about us, and the way we live our life, it's all about us, and we don't realize that there's a bigger purpose a lot of times to things that are going on. We always, when we have, when we have an issue that pops up, the first response is, not how does it affect everyone, how does it affect me? And one of the things that I, I was struck by in listening to them talk about President Bush was whenever he'd go visit, and he passed this on to his son in a way too, this, the Bush 43, is they both said the same thing. They were aware that people were watching them for how they respond in certain situations. And they, they carried a great weight in that, realizing that they influenced people. And sometimes they had to put their personal pain aside to be able to lead. And man, we are missing that among the men in the church today, I'm just telling you. Amen. And so women are leading because the men won't. The men are too distracted with their own issues. And it's time for us as men to step up and be the leaders God calls us to be. And one of the ways we do that is in that base community. Now, you go, well, what if I'm not married? What if I'm single? Well, you can still take these principles and apply. You can still have a tender heart. You know, you can still realize your own need for a Savior. You can still realize that you're under the authority of God's word. Those are the three things that I think he's bringing out here. And, and for us on an everyday level, I mean, we go, we go back to the first few verses. Remember those four legs that it stands on. God created one man and one woman. What about when you hear somebody talking about one man and one man or one woman and one woman? Do you just stay quiet? Do you just sit there and go, I don't want to get involved in that? I'm not talking about to people you don't know. I'm talking about people in your circle of influence. People that you have a relationship with. Because what the church has done is we pull back now and we're quiet. And silence is consent a lot of times. And I refuse to be silent. I refuse to be silent. And we have a responsibility. God said one man and one woman. And he said for that man, when he leaves, he said he has to leave the most treasured relationship in a person's life between his parents and the child and the relationship with the spouse takes priority over everything else. And that doesn't happen a lot either. A lot of times we allow work to become a priority over our spouse, our anxiety over money to become a priority over our spouse. And then the third thing he says, when you get married, you become one flesh. That's a third leg. You're one. You're not two people anymore. You are one. I know husbands that have separate bank accounts. They have separate, they they won't even let their spouse see their computer because of what they're hiding on there. My wife has access to my phone, my computer, my iPad. There's nothing in my life she can't see because we're one. The only time that doesn't apply is a week before
1: Christmas.
0: (laughs) But other than that and her birthday, and thank goodness her birthday is December 19th, so it's right there with Christmas. So other than that time of year, she has free access to everything I have. I know a lot of men that do not allow their wives to have that kind of access. I think we are one. And I think scripture is pretty clear. God says you're one. You are one. And you're a complement. And then the other thing he says is what God joins together, no man should separate. And we've just thrown that out the window. We've thrown that out the window. And so he goes into this and take note of what it says. They say to him, why then did Moses command that we give a certificate of divorce. Well, see, what had happened back in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, there was a... a, Moses gave a statement about divorce. It's the only statement attributed to moses that would be a command there but it was not a command about divorce it was a command about remarriage and what it was i'm just going to paraphrase is when a man divorced his wife and then she went and married another man it says even if that second husband dies that original husband could not be married to her again that's strong. And you know why it's strong? Because God's protecting marriage to say, you're not going to frivolously just throw this woman away. It, the, the term in 24.1 is indecency. If he finds an indecency in there, and that was the key argument between Shammai and Hillel. What does that mean? Well, the word there is used in the prior chapter, chapter 23, uh, talking about human excrement, the way you deal with it in the camp to keep the camp clean. And the idea there is when something's just short of adultery and I, the, the guess is, listen, do you and I, if we know this is the limit and we can't go here or we're in trouble, won't we push that limit a lot of times? So we'll do something just short and think we're okay. So what he was saying there is if if a husband does something or a woman does something, actually the woman, because the, the husband, the women couldn't divorce the husbands back then, but... If the woman does something just short of adultery and you divorce her, you cannot remarry her, period. The only reason that a man could remarry in the Old Testament was adultery. And you know why? It wasn't because of divorce. It's because they killed the woman. They executed her. That was why. So when people committed adultery, they were to kill the man and the woman who did it. And so that made it easy to remarry if, if, if the man cheated on the wife or the woman cheated on the husband. Then the man could remarry. Why? Because he didn't have a wife. Because she committed adultery. And that adultery that they were killed for, was it was persistent, unrepentant lifestyle of adultery. It was not a one-act deal. Otherwise, David would have been stoned after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. You ever thought about that? It was not one-off. And I've heard people, I was talking to a guy not too long ago, and he said, well, the one thing I couldn't handle is if she cheated on me. I go, what do you mean? Well, if she cheated, man, we're, I mean, I just couldn't handle that. And I said, so you wouldn't forgive her? Oh, I'd forgive her, but I couldn't stay married to her. I'm like, why? If she was repentant. I said, if she was repentant? Well, the Bible says if she commits adultery, then I'm free. See, the mindset is it's an exception, and so we always have that card in the back of our mind that if I want to get out, then maybe she'll commit adultery. I know guys who've actually prayed that their spouses would do that so they could get out of the marriage. And we laugh, but you think about that. It shows that we live for the exception, and that's exactly where the Pharisees were. And so, God reveals that he wants us to have a tender heart guys he said because of the hardness of your heart Moses never commanded it he allowed it why because at one point and we don't know where it's not in scripture there was a transition from killing people that committed adultery to allowing them to be divorced that's all we know we don't know when it happened but there was and Jesus Uh, addresses it in verse eight here that at some point in God's grace there was a transition from execution to just simply allowing divorce and so what Jesus is saying is we need a tender heart in our marriage and I just jotted down these three things a grateful heart an understanding heart and a forgiving heart will lead to a tender heart because because when you're not grateful When you're always complaining, you look at other people and you think they've got it better than you. And why can't your wife be like that wife? You know, that wife has it all together and you look from the outside. And here's what happens a lot of times. Guys will divorce from one woman to go marry another and then that woman and marry another. And they keep transferring and they think that they're gonna find the answer in a woman and they never find it in that woman. Because the problem that they're dealing with is in their own life. They don't ever look inward and they have a prideful heart and it may be in only one area, but that prideful heart surfaces and they can't deal with whatever they're dealing with. See, the the, the thing about a covenant marriage relationship is it is a crucible for dealing with forgiveness and understanding. Peter says, deal with your wives in an understanding way she's a weaker vessel doesn't mean she's inferior it means that she's delicate and the way we deal with them has to be with delicacy in fact i shared this this morning a lot of times when we go through difficult times with somebody at work or uh, another guy if you tell your wife about it she will she will carry that burden a lot longer than you will because you'll let go of it after you've dealt with it. And she'll still keep burning over it in her heart because she's such an emotional being. And so we have to guard our wives. We want to protect our wives. But we need to be understanding with them. We also need to be forgiving. Isn't it interesting that just before he deals with this issue, he deals with forgiveness in Matthew 18. You've been forgiven much, now go forgive much. How can you say you love God when you don't forgive somebody, especially your own spouse? It's because a lot of times we allow our emotions to get worked into that. And I, listen, I hate teaching on this because I swear every time I do, the night before something happens between me and my wife, there's a miscommunication. Every time. And I end up having to humble myself and say, I'm sorry when I didn't even know what I did. And I pull my hair out sometimes. I'm going, golly, I didn't even do anything. But do I care about my wife enough to humble myself? To say, I'm sorry that you feel like I shorted you in some way, even though I might not have a tender heart. Well, then he says, he says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, What does it mean to recognize our own need for a Savior? Well, we're adulterous beings as men, either by the actual act of what they were doing in this passage or what Jesus said in Matthew 5, looking at a woman and lusting after her. We've already committed adultery in our hearts. So we need Him. We're adulterous. And you know what happens when you... realize that you're a sinful person, one of two things happens. You realize your need for Jesus and you receive it. Or you realize that you've blown it and you keep trying to scheme to make it right on your own. That's what happens. We all know the story of Luke 15, the prodigal son, right? Son, Tells his father he wants everything. Give me my share of the inheritance. He goes to a faraway land. Why does he go to faraway land? He doesn't want to be around his father. It has so much more meaning that we even assign to it. The, all the stuff in that story. But he goes away, and then it says he comes to his senses. When does the son repent in that passage? Die. When do you think he repents? <clears throat> what does he do when he's there and he realizes it says he comes he changes to his. his Alright. Wh- when he comes to his father and says, I'll be your servant. Nope. You of know of, when he really uh, repents? Listen what happens in that story. He's in the pig pen. He's at wit's end, he has nothing left, and he says. I know my father treats his servants better than I have it now. I know I will go back to him and I will tell him I'm not worthy to be your servant. See, he's scheming again of how he can work his way into the father's good graces. And he goes back to his father and his father sees him a long way off and he runs to him. And I believe the moment he repents, He really repents. is when he starts to give that speech, the father cuts him off and he takes it. He receives it. It's not about what the son does. It's responding to the father. And I'm telling you, so many of us as men, when we know we've blown it, we keep trying to figure out how we can do it on our own. How we can make things better. And we get more frustrated. And a lot of times we vent that frustration out on our spouse. When we try to fix the problem. And we can't fix our wife. Guys, I'm going to tell you, you can't fix other people. You have no ability to do that. And so, what if God brings somebody into your life that for your entire life you serve as Christ served the church? And what did the church do to Christ? They crucified Him. The people that would ultimately be that church, that his, everybody left him, nobody was there. But we're instructed to love our wives like Christ loved the church enough to die for it. That's pretty huge. He says, and, and the disciples got that. You know how I know they got it? They go, wow, if that's the case, it's better not to be married. You know they got it. And he said to them not everybody can receive that why because we lust after women we have needs as men and there's a need for the faith community to continue and so he says some people might be blessed with the gift of singleness some people are made single because of their job in that day and age if a king wanted to hire you to be part of his royal court he castrated you so that you wouldn't be tempted by some seductress that would allow an assassin or somebody to come in. Some people were born single uh, and not with an ability to reproduce. But some decided for the kingdom's sake to be single. But he said, that's between them and God. The bottom line is, not everybody can receive this. Only those two who has been given. And that last part is allowing his word to be our authority. About 20 years ago, I had a guy come up to me and say, Doug, I'm going through a really rough time, and I just want to know what the Bible says about divorce, because I'm really feeling like we need to divorce. So I took him to Matthew 19, and after I shared it with him, I just have a hard time believing that God doesn't want me to be happy, man. I know God does not want me to be unhappy in this marriage. And that's the rationale of so many people that have gotten divorced. Now, listen, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. But I can promise you this. You will have a litany of consequences going down that road that you can't unpack. It's like squeezing toothpaste out of a tube. Once you go down that road, you can violate God's best for you and and doesn't mean that you're you're not going to be redeemable that he can't redeem some of that but there's always consequences and and I think what Jesus is saying here is listen he wants us to have a covenant lifelong relationship George Bush was married to 73 years to his wife 73 years And he transmitted that. You know, my wife and I celebrate 35 years on the 10th. We celebrate 35, half of that. And I'm telling you, there's lots of bumps and bruises, but it's worth it. It's worth it because the more we keep going down the road, it's like when you bring two, (laughs) I shared this yesterday on the radio, when you bring two streams together, what happens? You have rapids and shallowness, right? But the further you go downstream, it gets deeper and smoother. It does. And, and you know what? You learn that you can't change your spouse and she can't change me. And so we live with our imperfections. We pray for each other through the imperfections. And we just keep chugging along. As a faith community, raising up kids that love Jesus. And that's the base unit there. So as we close today, I I really, I want you to think about these questions for you as you leave. How tender is my heart? It's an application point. How tender is my heart? Second question is, am I pridefully scheming or gratefully receiving? Jesus died on that cross for us that we don't have to do the work. He's already done it. He just wants us to receive his embrace. And third, is God's word my authority? And if so, am I receiving yet? Dave, would you uh, close our time of prayer? <clears throat>